Mom, Mom, Mama, what's parent wise? So when do you want to go to sleep? None time. None time? Parentwise is wildly honest. We talk to real parents about real issues. Parents often have no place to go to figure out what to do and how to fix it. A community of parents who find solutions that work in the real world. The first step to fixing anything is understanding the why of it. Hi, I'm Carrie Jordan. And I'm Dr. B. And, and this, this is Parentwise. Welcome. Today's episode is a bonus episode. So yeah. it will be different from our normal episodes where we interview parents. This one is going to be speaking with a specialist about something that is really interesting and that I think I never really heard about or considered before. But now that I know about it, it makes complete and total sense and I can kind of integrate it into the way that I think and the things that I notice with my children. I was talking to my brother at Thanksgiving, and he was telling me about the presentation he was going to be given, which is something he does every year after Thanksgiving at the Dental Association. And I found that the material he was talking about was specifically related to parents of young children, and that in all the years that I've been a clinician, I'd never heard about the impact of dental concerns on behavior. And... The more I listened and the more questions I asked, the more I realized how significant this was. So I thought, this is really important. We've got to get this out to our parents. Right. And when we say dental issues, it's not necessarily like cavities and teeth and the way that you normally think about your dentist and what your dentist does. Dentistry is changing, starting to kind of become more holistic, not just about the teeth. So uh, let's get to it and we will wrap it up at the end of the interview. This is going to be a special episode because I found the information that you gave me so important. This is Ben Waldman, and he's my brother. He is number five of seven. And Ben, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I currently work for a company that sells CT scanners in the dental community, mostly to dental surgeons, pediatric dentists, and to orthodontics. And I lecture around the country on pediatric sleep disorders, a thing called sleep disordered breathing in children, as well as adult sleep apnea. Great. And that's connected to dental work? Yes. Actually, what's relatively new, very new in dentistry is the focus on whole health dentistry, as well as the teeth and the oral pharyngeal, nasal pharyngeal airway. So everything that you breathe, drink, eat, and sleep with, and how it affects the body. Now, you just said a big word there that certainly if you hadn't explained it to me earlier, I wouldn't know. You said oral pharyngeal? Yes. If you think of when you breathe through your nose and when you breathe through your mouth, they come together at the back of your throat and then form one airway passage. That's your pharyngeal airway. So the oral pharyngeal airway starts at your lips and goes back and your nasal pharyngeal starts at your nostrils and goes back. So if, say, your mom was, say, a heavy nose breather. Nose is the only thing that you, as an adult, or your children especially, should be breathing through. What you're hearing is a restricted nasal airway. The good news is mom is breathing through her nose. The bad news is that the sound you're hearing means there's a restriction. Interesting. 
Hmm. All right. Well, I'll have her take care of that immediately. (laughs) Back back to the topic. This is actually the first time I've heard of this. (laughs) The nose is for breathing and the mouth is for eating and drinking. One of the quickest measures to find out if you've got airway health in children is to make sure that when they're sleeping, they're sleeping and breathing through their nose. When they're awake, you want to be able to have them cover their own mouth and breathe without assistance and without struggling through their nose for at least 30 seconds. And if they can do that, that's the lowest bar that we test for in breathing for children to find out if they're nasal breathing properly. Okay. And if for some reason they cannot do that, uh, what would be a good thing to do? So that's your first clue that there's something going on. Mouth breathing generally means that there's some kind of obstruction. It could be allergies. It could be tonsils. It could be adenoids could be something's wrong in how the child's anatomy has developed so that the airways are closed. First test is, can they breathe easily through their nose? At birth, the thing that is becoming standard of care in some parts of the world, in fact, in Brazil, it's federal law that they have to check the frenulum, which is the, a connective tissue that connects the tongue to the base of the mouth, There are also other connective tissues that connect the upper and lower lips to the gums. The one that is the most critical to check at birth is the tongue tie. And the reason why that's important is that that if the tongue is tied because of a tight, what's called a tongue tie, with this frenulum at the bottom of the mouth, the tongue can't move to the roof of the mouth. Those people who are listening, when you're listening right now, just do an exercise. Go ahead and swallow. We swallow about 100 times an hour. So it's a very natural thing to do. Swallow. And now swallow again and pay attention to where your tongue goes. And if you pay attention, you'll feel the pressure of the tongue in normal function will press up to the roof of the mouth. And your tongue is not functioning properly because it's tied to the base of your mouth, right? It can't get up and press up against it. The teeth come in. You get what's called a narrow maxilla. It causes crowding in the teeth. It's going to cost you parents an arm and a leg if you want to get it fixed later on in life with the orthodontist, and it it creates breathing problems. If you start at birth with this tongue tie and it goes unaddressed, that's just one of the issues that it causes. So the other thing that happens with children is a lot of speech and language therapists deal with these issues of tongue ties. Children come to them either not being able to speak properly or not being able to swallow properly with a child who at this point may be five years old or six years old or seven years old. And now you've got speech problems or sleeping problems or breathing problems. And uh, it's something that can be solved in five minutes in the delivery room. In Brazil, over the last four years, as they've been keeping statistics, they have had to have surgical intervention on 21% of the children born and 9% were borderline. So they had 30% that were either borderline or they actually had to do surgical intervention. This study has been very, very interesting. From about 1990 on, there's been a spike in the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. But if you look at the symptom panels for the two diseases, meaning attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and sleep disordered breathing or fatigue in children, chronic fatigue in children, they're very, very similar. I won't say that they're identical, but they're very similar. One of my children had a diagnosis at school and I pulled it up. So this is now from 2003. And I looked at the 
questions that they asked for the school nurse and then for the doctor, and they were all related to fatigue. Is this student sleepy during the day? Does this student have a hard time concentrating? Does this student have a hard time following multiple step procedures? If you look at the University of Michigan Pediatric Sleep Health Questionnaire, some of those questions, if they're not identically worded, they're so close that a layman would think they're identically worded. The same questions are asked about fatigue as attention deficit. So what we end up doing is, if we ask those questions at school, we get a diagnosis of ADD, ADHD, and we medicate with stimulants. And if we ask those same questions of the same child at a pediatric sleep center, we end up getting diagnoses that are different and prognoses and not the same medication. We don't medicate with stimulants for somebody who's fatigued and can't sleep because of a breathing problem that has to do with a physical obstruction. And it's very hard if you don't know if you're a school counselor or a school nurse or a teacher, and you don't know that there is this wholly different set of problems that could be causing an identical set of symptoms, you won't be looking for it. There was a study that you talked to me about where they identified about 20% of kids with this problem. And then they did some treatment and I thought it was very interesting, the results. Yeah, there's a very famous scientist by the name of David Gozal. And he did a study where they went to 297 first grade children whose school performance was in the lowest 10th percentile of their class ranking. So they only studied children who were in the bottom academic performance and they tested them for what we now would call sleep disordered breathing. And they tested them and they found out that about 18% of these children had actually had physical airway obstruction. So they went to those parents and they said, we'd like to perform either a tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, one or the other or both, to solve your child's airway obstruction. And so a group of those 54 children, 24 of the 54, underwent surgical procedures and the rest, their parents elected for whatever reason not to have the surgical intervention. All of the children who had the surgical intervention moved out of the bottom 10% in the following year when they tested them. None of the 30 who didn't have it or the children who weren't found to have the problem who were in that bottom decile, none of them moved up. So it's profound to think that if you take some children who are performing poorly academically, that if the sample is correct, and we have no reason to believe that it's not, that 18% of these children who we think are poor performers academically might actually have a medical problem that can be solved as simple as getting their tonsils and adenoids removed. Wow, that makes so much sense and is really exciting. So when we were talking about it, you showed me a picture. You said that the problem is that the average doctor, if he's looking in your mouth, can't really see where the obstruction is because when they open the mouth, the muscles clear the airway and that there is a procedure or a test that they give with a machine. Is it a physician that gives that or a dentist that gives that? And what's the name of it? Could you describe that? Sure. So what I was talking about is if your child has swollen adenoids, it's hard for somebody to look in your throat and see them because the adenoids are actually hidden back above the soft palate. Now, your tonsils are easy to see when they're swollen. The adenoids, to see them, you'd either have to put a scope up the nostril and see behind that, 
to go into the throat through the mouth and then back around up the back way. So you can't see them just looking at a child. And many children go undetected and because people aren't looking for that. And unless you send your child to a pediatric ENT or a pediatric pulmonologist who would routinely scope them, you're going to miss it. On the other hand, uh, many pediatricians and orthodontists who are used to looking at children have adopted this technology called cone beam technology. It's a CT scanner like you would find in a hospital, except that it's a specific kind that is optimized for dental practices. And so it uses a significantly reduced dose. It can be less than one two hundredth of the dose that you would receive, your child would receive in a hospital. So it's very, very safe. And yet, a dentist can find out in under five minutes, is there an actual obstruction in around the adenoids? How long does that CAT scan take? And is it super noisy? I'm thinking in terms of prepping children. And do they have to be really, really still? Because children beyond a certain young age get very anxious. Great question. Um, So interestingly enough, a cone beam CT scanner, the one thing that actually can impact image quality and diagnostic image quality is patient movement. So the manufacturers of the company called iCAT were the first ones to put a CT scanner in a dental office. What they have done over time, the first CT scans used to take 25 seconds. So you tell a child of five years old, stay still for 25 seconds. And you can imagine how successful that was. They've now got it down to 4.9 seconds. And when I do my training of doctor's offices, I always tell them, while it's not nice to tell somebody to lie to a child, I always tell them, tell the child it takes eight seconds. And that's because if you tell a child to stay still for eight seconds, you'll get about five out of them. And that's how long the scan takes. So it's true. That's just practical. So it's very fast. The other thing that most of the machines are children who are anxious. Most of the machines that are out there have what's called a dry run function. So what we do is we uh, sit the child in the, in the CT scanner. And by the way, ours is, I think the only one, I guess there's one other one out there that has a chair. So we're not asking the child to stand up and stay still. We seat the child and uh, we have a little booster mm-hmm. seat for little children. And then we have a dry run where we can stand in the room with the child because it's not using radiation and it spins around their head really fast. And then th- they know what to expect. Do a dry run, yeah. it's, it's uh, completely permitted and safe. And then we'll say, okay, now I'm going to step out and we'll do this the real way. And then, by the way, then it's a fairly simple procedure, right? When I was growing up, you got to be five or six years old. They took your tonsils and adenoids out as a matter of course. So it's not an unknown right. procedure. I had uh, my tonsils out because of issues. I also had my adenoids out, if I remember yep. correctly. And her adenoids were so big that it changed the shape of her nose and face. I remember looking at her and thinking, oh my, (laughs) it looks really different. And she had had problems breathing and was having infections in her tonsils. So it was pretty routine at that point. But what was so interesting was that when David came around, who's two years younger, he was also having problems with his tonsils. He was also breathing through his mouth. And I couldn't find a pediatrician who would take his tonsils out. And he struggled with his tonsils and infections and adenoids until he was 17. I finally found an ENT who looked at him. And at that point, I was desperate because he was, we called it snorkeling. (laughs) He was 
sniffing and I'd say, David, blow your nose. And he'd say, it doesn't make any difference. You know, I, I blow my nose, nothing happens, nothing comes. And he was just always with this kind of like a postnatal drip. And the doctor said, you have two choices. He said, I've never seen tonsils so chronically infected. He said, <laughs> you can keep him on antibiotics for the rest of his life because that's the only way we're going to keep his tonsils from being actively infected. He said, or I would truly recommend that you take them out. And at 17, he had his tonsils and his adenoids removed. And uh, the snorkeling stopped. <laughs> you know, in, in the culture, it's like everybody was doing it when I was growing up and they were doing it when Carrie was at about three. But within two years, it was like, no, it's unnecessary and he'll get over it. Up until, let's say, the, the late 1970s, couple of million tonsillectomies each year in the United States. And it was done preventatively. You did that to keep tonsillitis from happening and all sorts of other infections that antibiotics now, strong antibiotics now cure. So they used to do that to make sure that children didn't develop infections that could affect other critical functions of the body. Right? It wasn't just that people did them, there was a method to it. And then when they developed these super antibiotics, it was better to have an antibiotic because you didn't have a risk of operating on a child where you do have actual surgical risks. So the problem is, is that the pendulum has swung so far to the, no, we don't take tonsils outside, that even where you have children who absolutely need the surgery, it's hard to find a pediatric ENT who will do that. And the other thing, I asked an ENT at, at a sleep conference not too long ago, and I said, why has it gone so much the other side? And he said, well, look, it varies by hospital and it varies by plan. He said, but if I decide to do a tonsillectomy on a child, he said, there's a statistical risk that they're going to have significant bleeding. And he said, and for that surgery, I'll get under $300. You know, he said, I have to decide if it's, you know, it's not just a time thing. He says, it's a risk factor. You know, we never know until we do the surgery what we think the outcomes are fairly predictable, but you never know, right? So right. that's the other side of the coin. Doctors have real risks and they're careful about them. You sent me a questionnaire about infant sleep. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Would that be something that would be helpful to make available to our listeners to kind of get an idea what the sleep issues could yes, be? Yes, absolutely. And sleep health questionnaire is a, is a good thing. I'll provide you a couple of other articles that I think are helpful for patients. The great thing for parents out there is that unlike five years ago or even three years ago, the amount of interest in and material written for parents about this subject has exploded. Uh, in the last two, three years, there's just been an incredible amount of focus on this so that if you are interested and you go into the material that is provided on the website and you want to go, just go to Google and type pediatric sleep or children in sleep or why is my child so sleepy? Simple, simple searches like that will give you a treasure trove of material. And while I'm thinking about great material that's on the web, for those parents who, who suspect that this might be an issue, there is a fantastic video called Finding Connor Deegan. And it's the story of uh, a child's metamorphosis from fatigue and chronic problems, behavioral, academic, 
physical and how he grew out of it with the help of some dental professionals and medical professionals who found what the issues were and found out that they were physical, that they weren't underlying issues. There's a, another well-known orthodontist from Miami. His name is J.C. Quintero. And J.C., several years back, was actually about now it's coming on a decade. His child was not doing well academically. He was withdrawing socially. He was not oppositional so much, but he they could tell that his behavior had changed over time. And they took him to the pediatrician and they took him to several doctors. And the diagnosis that they got and, and recognized that this is an orthodontist taking his son to a doctor, a pediatrician, and the ENTs and the pediatric specialists, the best they could come up with is, is that, that his son was pre-asthmatic. So he didn't have asthma, but he was pre-asthmatic. And somehow through other connections, somebody suggested that he go and get one of these cone beam CT scans. And it found out that, in fact, he had an extraordinarily impacted airway from adenoids. They went and had the adenoids taken out, and uh, he, a year and a half ago, he was at that point, is 16 or 17, and became the uh, state champion in tennis in Florida. So he went from not being able to play at all, not being able to thrive academically or athletically, to becoming state champion, and it was a simple operation that they did. So again, you probably can you've, uh, you go to YouTube and type in J.C. Quintero, my story. He tells the story. It's it's a great great learning episode for those of us parents who have to go through this doctor and then another doctor and then another referral. Sometimes it takes a little bit of a search to find the right solution. That's remarkable. Yeah, we'll have to put a link to that on the website so people can check it out. Another thing that would really be helpful is whether or not you have a list of people who our listeners can connect with who have the, the types of machines that can do this kind of CAT scan. If you have something like that so that people have a sense that they can at least know where to start. I can do that. I will provide you a link for some different lists of doctors who specialize in this so that they'll have the equipment necessary to be able to, to do a low-dose fast scan on a patient so that it's safe and accurate and it's being used by an office that has the training so that they understand what they're looking for and why. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that can be really frustrating is when you go out on your own and you try and have these conversations with doctors and they look at you like you're crazy or they look at you, they give you the, it's like, oh, you've been on the web too much. And, um, <laughs> and honestly, like I've seen it, I've seen it before. They're like, oh, you're, I'm glad you think I'm cute, but no, I, I really need you to, you know, step out of what you think, you know, and, and listen to what I'm saying. So when you can just go directly to somebody who already is, has already bought in and you don't have to convince, you don't have to kind of deal with that. It's so nice just to go and know that you're going to just get the support you need. I like to try and uh, make things as plug and play as possible for parents because all this information can be really overwhelming you know, kind of my head's spinning a little bit since I have a baby and, a, you know, like, I'm like, all right, they're all damaged. I've got to do something. So if you were a new parent, knowing what you know now, what would you recommend in terms of steps? So first step for every parent is the next visit of your child to a pediatrician and or a dentist. So this is a question that both the pediatrician and the dentist get. Ask them to check your child for a tongue tie. It doesn't have to be tomorrow, but if you're going to a pediatrician for a checkup every year, or if they're much younger, it might be every month or every quarter, that's a question that goes on your list. Check my yeah. child for a tongue tie. 
And that's regardless of anything else that you notice. There's no reason not to. It takes a second to do it. The okay. second thing I would do is peek in on your child uh, sort of randomly for the next week when they're sleeping and make sure that they're not snoring. There is never a time except for perhaps, you know, it's sort of episodically if they have a cold. In normal mm. health sleeping, it is never okay for a child to snore. I'm guilty of it myself to be around a young baby and hear them snore and say, isn't that cute? But I have it from the experts in the industry at every level and in many respected universities that it's not okay for children to snore, especially not babies. That is a sign of something wrong. So peek in on your child and see if they're snoring, see if they're breathing easily. The third thing I would say is see if they're breathing through their mouth or if they're a nose breather. Nose breathing is normal. The nose is for breathing. The mouth is for eating. So if they are uh, mouth breathing as a part of their normal, that's an issue. So those three steps are very easy to do. The fourth thing I would say is, and this is where we sort of cross over into your realm, and that is to look at some of the behavioral symptoms. The first thing everybody with children knows is that when they're tired, they become behavior problems, right? Remember as a child, mom saying to me, oh, you're just tired. And I remember how much that infuriated me. <laughs> it would be behaving badly and wanting something. And she'd say, oh, you're just tired. And then I would get even more mad. Little boys tend to manifest it differently than little girls. They tend to be hyperkinetic and start either beating up on each other or on things. So they tend to take their fatigue out on objects. It's not to say girls don't do that, but you see it a little bit more in boys, which is why we see almost three times the diagnosis of ADHD in school for boys than we do for girls. So yeah, when you start to see these behavior problems, just think in the back of your head, okay, is my child fatigued now? And is this a chronic fatigue problem? Could it be that? Some of that fatigue may not be a medical problem. It may just be simple sleep hygiene. But behaviorally, it's important to recognize that some of the behavior problems that we hear from at school are absolutely tied to fatigue and not tied to an environmental issue or an innate behavioral issue. It just might be the child's tired. So I would say that's the easiest step one, step two, step three, step four. Any other words of wisdom to the parents who are listening? It can be on topic or off topic. Well, the fact that you're listening, you're miles ahead of many other parents who are trying to go this alone. And the fact that you're trying to learn, I think, already the first step. Keep listening, mm -hmm. keep, keep talking, keep asking. If you get to a behavior problem that doesn't make sense to you, you just know this is not your child. This has never been your child and you continue to reach out. I'm not telling you to just say, look, it can't be a behavioral issue, but at least you should entertain that perhaps, perhaps it's a physical problem. And maybe while you're, mm -hmm. you're searching with Carrie and Barbara to sort of suss out what might be the issue behaviorally, perhaps it's environmental, perhaps it is physical. And you'd be surprised at the number of cases that we've heard where patients come up or parents of patients come up literally in tears, crying, saying, I've got my son back. I've got my daughter back. I thought I'd lost them, but uh, you helped. And in our field, 
it's rare that it is a massive surgical intervention. Frequently, it's an adenoids or tonsil removal, or sometimes it's a, something as simple as training the muscles of the mouth and the nose to chew and swallow and speak correctly. And so keep at it, I guess that would be my advice. Yeah, I think that's awesome. great advice. And I especially think in this day and age where we're going for medication, it's just very common to be like, oh, we've got a pill for that. And, and then I know so many parents who just are afraid to go that direction. And sometimes it's the right way to go. But I think being able to just know that there are other options, there could be other things that they can explore so that they feel if the answer ends up being medication, that they've really looked into every possible option rather than just going with what might be seemingly the easiest solution, you know, take a pill. So I think it's great. Yep. Well, thank you so, 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 so much. I enjoyed this, guys. Uh, yeah, I, I did, did too. too. And I'm hoping that people will find this as helpful as I did. I've added it to my store of knowledge and we'll be talking with families about it as well. So wonderful. All right. Take care. Thanks for your Thanks, time, guys. Ben. All right. Okay. Love you. Bye. Bye-bye. So great episode, really excited about the information and just getting something that I don't think is very commonly known out into the public that could absolutely make a difference in a lot of, a lot of people's lives. I agree. I really agree. I think it's important. We'll recap here the four steps that he suggests. Mm-hmm. The first one he talks about is making sure that the next time you go to either the pediatrician or your pediatric dentist, that you ask them to do a quick check of your child's tongue to make sure that it doesn't have the tongue tie that he's talking about. He said that's very quick and shouldn't take more than, you know, 20, 30 seconds. In theory, if I may interject, because I can tell you that trying to see underneath my 16-month-old's tongue (laughs) is not as simple as like, (laughs) hey, kid, lift up your tongue. There's like a whole shoving of tongues and like you know biting of finger things and like i yeah so it's funny he's like yeah just have them check for it it'll be great and uh yeah it's not quite that simple especially like i said if you have a younger child and a child who will bite anything that is in its mouth so with that said check for a tongue tie yes The second thing he suggested was to go into the room when your child is sleeping and check to see if your child is snoring. He said that there is no reason why a child should be snoring. Obviously, if your child is sick, has a cold, that would be a different issue. But assuming that your child is in normal, healthy mode, there should be no snoring. The third thing that he talked about is to see if during the day your child is a nose breather or a mouth breather. And once again, he said that the most important thing is that your child be breathing through their nose and not their mouth, because if they're a mouth breather, especially during the day, that means there's something that may be compromising their airway. And the last thing he talked about is important to look at in terms of their behavior, to consider that if your child is having difficulties in school with either learning or acting out or any kind of problem behavior, to consider that perhaps there are sleep issues that may be compromising their ability to get as much sleep as they need and maybe bleeding into behavioral issues. And I thought that was a point very well taken because we don't usually think about that. Yeah, and I think, you know, with adults, we talk a lot about sleep apnea 
and things that can, you know, interrupt your sleep that you're not aware of. I had sleep apnea and had no idea that I had sleep apnea until I did a sleep study. You know, and obviously your quality of sleep affects your life. You know, are you tired during the day? Can you concentrate? All of those things. And so when you think about that in a child's perspective and how, you know, I feel and behave when I'm really tired and, you know, how cranky I get. And then look at children who just don't even have those coping skills at all. And he makes the point that males tend to act out in terms of like physically act out when they're tired, when they're frustrated, but particularly when they're fatigued. And not to say that girls don't, but it's more prevalent, which is why that ADHD tends to fall on boys more than girls. So finding, just keeping that in mind, especially if, if the behavior is really just not generally the nature of your child. I think most of us kind of, we know our kids. And while we don't like to think that there are behavioral issues, oftentimes there are, they're kids, like that's normal. But sometimes you can go, what is going on? Like, what is this? And then really start to look at quality of sleep and see if they're changing their sleep habits, you know, in terms of going to bed earlier, or are they having obstructions? Is it possible that they're not getting quality sleep because they can't breathe right? And that that is then causing the main problems. So it's such a great thing to be able to consider instead of going up, oh, up, oh, yep, there's problems. We need a, you know, a shrink and some, some drugs and, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes that's what it takes. Right. It just is. Right. But often, you know, like, I think it's always good to, to look at every other avenue before Absolutely. we get to that one. Right. You know, we have to explore all the options. Right. Exactly. Then the last thing I wanted to bring up was something that came up while we were having the interview but was completely off topic, yet very, very helpful and really changed the way I talk to my kids. So let me play the clip of that so that you can hear what he ended up saying. We're going to listen to it, and then afterwards we'll comment on it. Yes. I know this is off subject a little bit, but it's something I learned in doing this with pediatric dentistry. I wish I'd known this when I was raising my children. It turns out that the mind doesn't process modifiers to verbs. It only processes at the deepest level. It processes verbs. So if you tell a child, don't move, all the brain can think about is moving. Yeah, but if you right. say, stay still, it can process that as to stay still. So right. it's a little parenting tip I wish I'd known. Don't was my favorite modifier. Don't do this and don't do that. If I'd have known, I would have gone the other way. You know, it's so interesting. Um, uh, one time long ago when they were doing a needle biopsy on my thyroid. And I had a nurse who kept saying, don't swallow. <laughs> Every time you say it. Yeah. And I would swallow. Yeah. And and then she would yell at me. And she'd say, I told you, don't swallow. And I'd swallow again. <laughs> she, she said, we can't do this if you keep swallowing. And I looked at her. And I didn't know why I was swallowing. I, I was an adult. I could arrange to not swallow. But I finally looked at her and I said, if you could just please not talk to me while we do this. I think I can arrange that. And so you're telling me this tells me I wasn't wrong. It's interesting because I've always wondered why it was. Was it her voice that did it? But that was what she was doing. She was saying, don't swallow. What's so great about this is that this is so typical my brother. He throws something in and it's brilliant. It's just so smart. And it's it's one of the things that keeps me coming back for more. <laughs> yeah, that and you guys are related and you can't get away from them, even if you wanted to, really. <laughs> so 
So you're just kind of there when you think yeah, about it. And then luckily kid. he's interesting. And yeah, stuff. very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Has great true. kids, an amazing wife. He's a handsome man, too. Yes, so indeed. He's a handsome fellow. They're a great couple. Yes, his wife is like an angel, <laughs> but funnier than an angel. <laughs> his kids are crazy cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, but more than anything, he, you know. We're lucky to have him. I feel lucky to have him. Yep. We call I call him you Ben, <laughs> which is short for Uncle Ben. Yep. That was introduced by my brother, by yeah. the way. You Ben, we have you Michael, we have A Linda or A Lynn, that's for our aunts, A Shay. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> We're so clever in this family. Anyway, um <laughs> So this has totally changed the way that I talk to my kids. Instead of don't touch that, I say hands down. And there's just a lot of things that, ha that have changed where I give them a directive in terms of, you know, keep your hands down or instead of like, don't put that in your mouth, you know, like things like that. Because if they're keeping their hands down, then obviously they can't put it in their mouth or they aren't going to touch something when we're in, you know, a store made of glass. It's a much more positive way to approach things and gives clear direction where if you tell a child don't something, right. then what's the alternative? They could come up with 10 alternatives that might be worse. Right. And, you know, to his point, especially with younger kids, they just hear, they don't hear the don't. Right. They just hear the words. And anyway, I just thought that was great. So I just wanted to... And just... To, to warn parents, you have to know that when you're trying new behaviors, you're going to say don't. You're going to make mistakes. And as soon as you hear yourself do that, the best way to change that behavior is to stop, take a deep breath, think of what you want to say, and reframe it and do it again. So that if you say, don't touch that, then you might say their name, Rue, put your hands down. And that's a better way to catch yourself. And eventually you'll be able to just say, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, I certainly haven't stopped saying don't do blah, blah, blah. But, but that's the transitional learning. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's gotten a lot better and it has been positive change and very helpful. Very, very helpful. Great. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Our bonus episode with Ben Waldman talking about pediatric sleep issues and dentistry and scoping and adenoids and fun. Oh my. <laughs> And we'll see you again on our next episode. Yes. 